0: Let's pray together. God, we thank you again for an opportunity to gather together and to worship you and to have our hearts be encouraged by your goodness and your love for us. I thank you so much for this church body and the work that you are doing in people's lives. Um, I thank you for Steve and his encouragement and his wife, Michelle. We pray that you would bless their ministry, Lord. As they're operating in countries all around the world, we ask that you would use their efforts to bear fruit for your kingdom. And we pray for their neighbors, that as they get to know them, that they would have opportunity to point them to Jesus and that you would use their faithfulness in sharing the goodness of Christ uh, to bring about conversion in the lives of those people who are far from you. And we pray that for our neighbors, God. We pray that you would use our lives... Um, to point people to our good and gracious God who gladly gave his life for sinners like us, that they might be rescued out of that. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit. And we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would bear fruit in our own hearts, in our own lives. That through this time, we would come to trust you more and love you more, and that we would pursue the holiness that you've given to us by grace through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hopefully you're with me in 1 Peter chapter 1 already. And uh, let's jump right in. We're going to read verses 13 through 16. If you're a guest and you don't have a Bible, we have some on our little welcome table. You're uh, welcome to take one of those and keep it. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I don't typically give a title for my sermon. Uh, I tend to think that titles can kind of distract. I want it to be about the text, not about the title. But if I had to give a title for my sermon this morning, it would be From the Head... To the heart to the holiness of heaven. From the head to the heart to the holiness of heaven. And the reason I would give my sermon that title is because I think that that really summarizes quite well what Peter does in these verses, giving us some steps to live out the gospel in our lives. He moves from action in the mind to obedience that flows from the heart to the holiness of God in heaven. And he begins in verse 13 with this word, therefore. If you don't already know this, when you come across the word, therefore, in the Bible, it's kind of a signpost for you. Um, It's a little bit cheesy, I guess, but it's helpful. That saying, ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? In this case, the therefore points us backwards to what Peter has already been teaching us in the opening verses of his letter. It says something kind of like, hey, listen up. Everything that you are about to read is all dependent on what's already been said. It's kind of like the second story in a skyscraper. The only reason that story can exist and the stories that are on top of it is because you have that first story and the foundation that it's laid on. And Peter's, therefore, in verse 13, builds on verses 1 through 12. We've spent many weeks going through those verses, but I can kind of summarize it for you fairly simply. Because of our salvation that's been secured for us through the gospel work of Jesus, because God has caused us to be born again into an imperishable inheritance, this now is how we should live. This is how we should conduct our lives. Because God has saved us, it's now possible for us to live differently. All of those verses 1 through 12 have been this joyful, hope-filled reflection on God's work redeeming us from the life that we used to live. And now, in response to what He has done, we should trust Him in obedience. So Peter calls us forward into four things in verses 13 through 16. To prepare our minds for action, set our hope fully on the grace that is ahead, do not be conformed to our former passions, and be holy because God is holy. Now none of those things would even be possible for us if it weren't for what Jesus has already done for us causing us to be born again by his mercy. But now they are possible because of the work that God has done in our lives. So the first thing that Peter calls us to is to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded. Peter's uh, instruction at this point really couldn't be further from the current cultural moment that we're in, could it? to be sober-minded, to prepare our minds for action. We live in a culture that is obsessed with doing whatever feels right. We're constantly bombarded with these messages to just do whatever feels good, chase those good feelings. All that matters is that you feel good in life. But I found what Peter says at the beginning of verse 13 to be so interesting. He doesn't say preparing your desires for action. He doesn't even say preparing your will for action or preparing your hearts for action. Twice, he specifically mentions preparing your mind for action. Why is that? Dallas Willard, I think, has said it well. He says, to the extent that God is exalted in the minds of people and his very name is cherished with utmost respect, everything else goes right. That's because actions always flow from what we truly believe. But I think it is fair to say that the heart is kind of the control center of the person. The heart is typically the thing that leads to what we do. Most often, we're motivated by our hearts. The problem with that is that our hearts can often be fickle. Don't you feel that? The heart wants what the heart wants. And so we allow ourselves to be carried along by the desires of our heart, often, unfortunately, even to our own detriment, our own destruction. The, the phrase or the advice, just follow your heart, is some really, really terrible advice. You know, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, in some ways, that's the message he was giving them. The reason he managed to be so devastatingly effective was because he pulled on those desires. He led them to believe that God had something that He was keeping from them, and if they had just thought for a moment and looked around at all of God's beautiful creation that God Himself had said is very good, they might have been able to avoid that temptation by simply using their minds to see, actually, God has withheld no good thing from them. So the heart may be the control center of the person, but the mind has the ability to kind of wrangle the heart and lead it towards truth. The passion of the heart is very important, but Peter understands that the passion of the heart needs to be tempered by the mind. It's the mind that can say to the heart, hey, before you act, let's think about the consequences of that decision. Let's tease out what walking down that road might look like. Before you go and chase what feels good, let's consider where that choice might ultimately take us. Uh, If you spend time on social media at all, occasionally you'll come across a trending video that shows some drunk person doing something incredibly stupid and often something quite harmful. If you can manage to get to the end of the video and you can bear the pain that people put themselves through because of their commitment to drinking to stupidity, then you've seen this. Alcohol shuts down the mind. It prevents a person from thinking with wisdom and rationality and reason. Peter even uses that language right here. He says, be sober-minded. Because when our minds are not prepared for action, not fixed on the truth, then we're prone to wander into foolish action. We're prone to act only on our feelings. And the truth is, following Jesus does not always feel good. It doesn't. Sometimes it's really, really hard. Sometimes in following Jesus, he leads us straight into pain. That he intends to walk with us through. So the temptation is always to do what the heart might naturally do, which is avoid the pain. The temptation is to not follow Jesus when he leads that direction. You know, my parents are visiting with us this morning. I remember some real solid wisdom that my dad gave me years ago that has benefited me ever since. It was probably five years into planting Maricopa Springs Family Church, and that was an incredibly difficult journey. We were driving back from vacation, and as we were getting closer and closer to getting home from our trip in California, I could just feel this weight of despair descending on me in the car. And ministry had been really hard. It was really kind of almost indescribably hard. And I had thought, if we go on vacation, it will kind of clear my head. It will get me through the discouragement. And I'll come back just fired up, you know, to lead Maricopa Springs again. And it didn't work. And so we're driving home and Leanne asks me, you know, how I'm doing. And I was honest and said, I'm feeling really depressed. I think, I think when we get home, I'm going to quit. I'm just going to write a resignation letter and just be done with it, and I don't know, I'll go work at Circle K or something like that. And uh, I just didn't feel good about my work as a pastor. I didn't feel good about the efforts of my ministry. I didn't feel like I could keep going, and I really wanted to quit. And my wife, being patient and wise like she is, she, um, she tried to encourage me, and when that didn't work, she tattled on me to my parents. <laughs> And so shortly after we got home, I get a call from my dad. And he said something so simple but powerfully true. He said to me, Grady, we don't make life-changing decisions in the darkness of the valley. We don't make life-changing decisions when we can't see or think clearly. And he was reminding me that although my heart was overwhelmed, although my heart was experiencing pain... Although my heart was ready to flee and run down an easier path, I needed to act with clarity of mind. I needed the ability to see straight, to not be ruled by the impulses of my heart. What I needed was not to escape, but to be sober minded, to remember the things that were true, that in ministry, God is in control. He bears the fruit. He is the boss. It's his ministry. I'm just a servant seeking his will. Something that my mind knew to be true, but my heart had forgotten in the hardness. And I'm so glad that on that day, I prepared my mind for action. I renewed my commitment to be sober-minded, to not quit, to trust God. And hopefully you can see why this matters. We must decide now in this moment when our minds are clear that we're going to keep moving towards Jesus, whatever difficulties might be on that path in the future. We need to let the confidence of our faith now in this moment when we have clarity, determine that we are going to follow Christ so that when the anxiety of doubt comes, we can stand firm in that moment. We need to let the confidence of what we know to be true right now set the direction of our hearts going forward so that when those future seasons of discouragement come, and they will come, we don't throw in the towel and give up. We need to grow right now in our trust in God so that even when our hearts are telling us, I just want the easy way out, our minds are prepared to act and to follow Jesus wherever he leads. I think this is further emphasized for us uh, in verse 13. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see where Peter points us. Obviously, he doesn't tell us, look back, I don't know about you, but when I look back, I tend to see failure. I tend to see sin. That would lead to discouragement. I think that would lead to despair. So Peter doesn't say look back. Now, fortunately, he could tell us to look back at the cross where all of our sin and failure and discouragement is conquered by Jesus Christ. But that's not what he does. Peter also doesn't say, hey, just look around you. Look at the present. Oftentimes, we're walking through the valley of the shadow. And so Peter knows that's not a good place for us to look. Peter knows that if we set our hope in our daily efforts or in the things that are taking place around us in the world, it would be way too easy to be distracted and and discouraged. We'll feel anxious and afraid and frustrated. But I also want you to see, Peter doesn't say, hey, set your mind on tomorrow, you know, like Annie, just thinking about tomorrow, or next week, or next year. He doesn't say, set your mind on the near future. Peter understands that in this life, we're always on a very slow journey towards maturity in Christ. Every day is going to have its challenges. So Peter says, set your mind fully, completely, all of your hope upon The grace that will finally be given to you on the day that Christ appears. Friends, take heart. This war is already won. The end is written for us in Revelation. Jesus comes to claim his people. Not one of them will be lost. At the end of this long, hard journey is rest and peace and joy. Peter says, set your Hope on that. Your failures on that day will be swallowed up in his grace. Your tears will be washed away by his gentle hand. Your filthy rags and your soiled feet will be cleaned with his love. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you on the day when Christ returns. That's what Paul spoke about in Philippians 3, the scripture that we read. One time I ran a half marathon, it was absolute torture. It was actually sort of by accident, which is a weird story, I won't tell you the whole thing now. Um, I would never do it again. And the only thing that kept me moving one foot in front of the other was just fantasizing about the finish line and the lunch that was supposedly waiting there at the end for me. And I crossed the line, I crossed the finish line. Because I kept my hope set on finishing that race. And so Peter calls us not to look at the past or at the present or even the near future, but to look to Christ who is coming and will meet us at the end prepared with incomprehensible love. With grace, with praise, because we belong to him. As we move into verse 14, we get to this phrase, As obedient children I'm going to come back to that, so let's look at the next directive that Peter gives us. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In some ways, we already discussed some of this when we were talking about preparing our minds, but I want you to see what Peter does here. He connects ignorance and passion. A person who does not use their mind is ignorant, And if we are ignorant about the things of God, then we will be ruled by our passions. We will be captured by our cravings. If our minds are not prepared for action and set upon the hope of Jesus, then when temptation comes its way, we will end up defeated by desire or lust or hunger or power or comfort or self-glory if we're not setting our minds on the beauty and wisdom and hope of Jesus to be ruled by him and ruled by his grace, then our fallen passions will inevitably lead our hearts away from God, will be ruled by a kind of ignorant animal instinct driven by a need for comfort or pleasure. Let me say it another way. If we're ignorant about the grace that will be brought to us at the end, or we fail to prepare our minds for action thinking about the reward that awaits us, then I think we're going to be prone to make one of two errors. The first error is that we might look at how overwhelming life is. We might begin to sort of count our wins and count our losses and realize we've got way more losses than victories. And we might begin to believe we cannot possibly achieve what God expects from us. So why even try? Why not just give in? If we lose sight of grace and we become ignorant of what God has accomplished for us through Christ, then we're going to rely on our own efforts and surely we will fail. Or the second thing, the second error, by losing sight of the reward that God has in store for those of us who keep the faith and press on, that reward that is kept for us in heaven by His grace and we begin to believe the lie that the reward is not greater than this momentary pleasure. The reward that is delayed for us it, is not better than the craving being satisfied. If we forget the greater pleasure of Jesus and we fall for the false and fleeting pleasure of sin, then we might become despair being ignorant of our freedom and ignorant of our reward, we might give ourselves over to slavery, to our passions. But again, if we set our minds on the grace of God's love, then a wonderful world of possibility then opens up for us. Peter teases it out for us. He calls us obedient children. And then in verse 15, I'm sorry, yeah, in verse 15, he says, "'As he who called you is holy,' You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I believe the key to understanding verses 15 and verses 16 is the identity that Peter gives to us in verse 14. He calls us children. That is to say, children of God. And then he gives us this very important phrasing in verse 15. He says, As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. Does that feel overwhelming? The standard of holiness? I think without carefully considering the little details here, what Peter seems to be telling us is that God's expectation for you is the perfection of holiness. We might read this and hear something like this, God is holy, and therefore, if you don't live up to that, then you fail. But that's not actually what Peter is saying here. Peter is drawing out for us implications. He's saying God is holy, and we are children of God, therefore, holiness is possible. Peter's not so much commanding us to be holy as he's reminding us who we are as children of God. Let me try and illustrate it for you. Um, and it's really funny that I have sports illustrations this morning and that Steve Connor is here because you know, my family couldn't know less about sports, unfortunately, but if I were to say to my children, hey, you should be more like the LeBron James, that would be an impossible expectation to put on them for a number of reasons, right? They don't know him, they've never been around him, they've never met him, they've not learned from him, they don't look like him. Actually, I'll confess, they probably don't even know who LeBron James is, that's how ignorant of sports we are in my house. (laughs) But if I were to say to my children, you should be like me, a root. That's what you are, that's your name. There's very little for them to do in that, isn't there? Because that's actually already who they are. They're my children, they're my flesh and blood. They've learned everything from me. They've spent their whole lives around me. They look like me, tragically. Just kidding. They know me down to their very DNA. They reflect me, right? It's only natural that they would be who they are. And so Peter's pointing out the wonderful implications of what God has done for us in causing us to be born again causing us to be children of God. Since God is holy and we are in God, we can live in holiness rather than being enslaved by our passions. It's a real, actual possibility for us as Christians that we can be like God in the holiness of our conduct because He's made us His children. Let me offer another way to illustrate this, and I may have used this before, but I do think it's helpful imagery, so if you've heard me say this before, forgive me. But as humans, in our natural fallen state, we're actually more like pigs. We actually are pigs. Bear with me in the illustration. We love to play around in the filthy mud hole of our sin. We love it. And because we are pigs, we don't even know any different. We love sin. We delight in it. We take pleasure in it. We even think it's proper that we would wallow around in the filth. And then Jesus comes to us, and in his mercy, he transforms us. He makes us like him in true humanity. He pulls us out of the filth of our sin, and he clothes us in the righteousness of royalty. He changes us. He makes us new. And then he says, go live in this newness of life. Go live like a true person. Be free of the filth and the mud. Be holy, because now you're like me. He's giving us a vision of what is possible. And yeah, sometimes we dive back into the filthy mud hole and we play with the pigs. That's true. But we are no longer a pig anymore. We are truly like our Savior. And so the proper place for us is in the purity of holiness with Jesus. That's where we can, in fact, choose to live and to stay. So look again at the text here. And I hate to be the guy who uses Greek in my sermons. You can understand everything the Bible wants to teach you without knowing Greek. Thank God for English, okay? But sometimes it is helpful. Sometimes by bringing in the, the old languages, we can get kind of like an HD picture, There's one command for us in verses 15 and 16, but it's stated in two different ways. In verse 15, we read, you also be holy. That verb is an imperative. An imperative is a command. The most simple grammatical way to understand that is that Peter is giving us a command. Go live this way. You must be holy. But Peter grounds that command in a quote from Leviticus chapter 11, which he records for us in verse 16. I'm using the ESV translation, and it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, in English, that looks like another command, right? If I say to my children, you shall go clean your room, they hear a command. But actually, the Greek here, the verb... It's not an imperative. It's not a command. The verb is a future indicative, which is to say that it is a statement about reality. It is indicating what is true and telling us what will be true. God's plan for all of his children, you included, as a child of God by grace through faith in Christ, God's plan is that you will be holy. You shall be holy, not by virtue of the command that is given here, but by virtue of the grace that you have been given in Christ. God has promised that through the forgiveness of our sins, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that our final state before him, after the resurrection and the judgment of the dead, is that we will be holy. Don't you see what a beautiful promise that is? Doesn't that give you such great hope in that toil, that fight towards righteousness? God is holy, and therefore, because you belong to Him, you will be holy. You shall be holy. Praise God that at the end of this long, difficult journey of following Christ, the gift of holiness is waiting there for you. Now, does that mean we're off the hook? There's nothing more for us to do? Like we can just chill out and stop striving? We can live however we want between now and then if holiness is waiting for us? Certainly not. Peter has already said, you must prepare your mind for action. You must be sober-minded. You must set your hope fully on the grace ahead of you. You must live as an obedient child, not like the pig you once were. You must not live in the passion of ignorance, but take heart and find rest and have peace in the fact that God's holiness is yours. It is offered to you every day, and it will be fully there for you in eternity. What God has commanded you to do in being holy, God has made provision for you to do in Christ. One more illustration that might tease this out. And again, an athletic illustration. I don't know what the deal is this morning. But in order to be an Olympic athlete, you first have to compete and pass some trials. You have to qualify in order to compete in the Olympics. And if you were to pass that qualification and be accepted as an Olympic athlete, you could call yourself an Olympic athlete, but the truth is you have not yet competed You are not an Olympian, you are only qualified to compete. But if you passed the qualification and you got accepted to compete, somebody tell me, how would you live every day between your qualifying trials and the day of your competition in the Olympics? Would you spend your time sitting around on the couch eating ice cream and watching TV? Certainly not, right? You would work harder than you've ever worked before. You would labor with more intensity than you had ever put into the qualifying trials. You would train tirelessly because you've been given an Olympic identity, and yet the important day of your testing is still on the horizon, still yet to come. No Olympic athlete gets accepted to compete in the Olympics and then after qualifying trials goes home and bums their way to the competition. That is a sure recipe for failure. They work even harder than ever before to prepare for what's ahead. And so Peter would have us understand that by God's grace, we've been born again We are a child of God, and grace will lead us home into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. And because we are God's children now, we can conduct ourselves with holiness and obedience because God has already made provision, both now and forever, for us to live that way. A whole world of possibility is opened up to us, where we are no longer enslaved to our passions and our cravings, But instead, Jesus Christ rules and reigns in our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies. So Peter's goal here is not to crush you with this unbearable burden of holiness. As if we must bear that weight with our own feeble strength. Something that we could never do. Not ever. Peter's trying to encourage us and inspire us for the journey that's ahead. If we fix our minds on the finish line, and if we prepare our minds for action, if we live in our Christ-centered identity and not in the mud hole of that sinful craving, if we see ourselves as God's children under His loving care from day to day, and if we comprehend that our nature is already holy because of who Christ is in us, how certain is our victory? Indeed, our salvation is assured. By God himself, we can be confident in the power of his grace to sustain us. We can live with confidence and peace that we are going to succeed because God is holy and we belong to him as his holy children. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the holiness that is already ours by virtue of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary that we would prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded and set our hope on the grace that will be revealed to us fully when Christ returns. We thank you that you have made every provision. And I pray that in response to that, as your children, that we would walk in obedience as an expression of love for you. God, we thank you for your tender mercies for your daily faithfulness, for your constant love, even when we are unloving, when we fail. We thank you for the holiness that is ours because we've been born again into this imperishable inheritance. Amen.